Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. Uh, we've already heard it prayed this morning, uh, the prayer of trust that your word will not return to you empty, it will accomplish what you purpose. And so we pray that you would achieve your purposes in us today as, uh, as we consider your word together. And we pray that you would deepen our convictions uh, that there is a life to come and that following Jesus is the only way to get there. So we pray that you would help us in this way, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what, are you, what are your thoughts about life after death? Uh, I guess there's lots of thoughts about life after death, but I've met very, very few people who don't believe in it. I worked for a whole year in the funeral industry. I've done a lot of funerals over my time, but... Uh, when I um, returned to Ridley College to do some study there some years ago, I rang the funeral director and t- to tell him that I, w- I wouldn't be the, the voice that answered the phone anymore. And he said, oh, what are you going to do for work? I said, oh, I'll be looking for work. He said, I can give you as much as you want. And so for a whole year, I was on call to do funerals. And I was just paid to turn up and help out with funerals. And so I sat there and listened while people's lives were summed up. Because that's what a funeral is. It's a summary of a life. Uh, these days they go a bit longer but your life will one day be summed up in between an hour and two hours so what will they say there's a challenge (laughs) give them something good to say because I went to some where they almost didn't know what to say Uh, but I, I, I went to very few funerals in fact I could only think of one where there wasn't some acknowledgement that the deceased the one who we were there to celebrate or remember wasn't somewhere better now doing in, perpetu- in perpetuity or in eternity the things that had brought the most joy on earth so uncle bob's up playing golf or dad's fishing or whatever it might be it's always the blokes who play golf and fish i don't know what the women do in heaven uh no i've never heard anybody feel you know um nana's knitting forever i've never heard i, I mean but that's the sort of stuff they speak about and i've also never seen anybody say well it was good knowing you dad it's always good knowing you, Dad. So there's all these assumptions. But the question is, says who? If you're going to make a decision as important as where you spend eternity, you'd want to do it on the basis of pretty sound authority. Now, do you know the ABC program Q&A? I try to make a habit of not watching it these days, but I did, I did turn it on once. It was back in 2010. It was a long time ago. But uh, I found the station on the website. There's a transcript of the whole program. Now, I can't remember what the whole thing was about, but the last question was this. Tony Jones, the presenter, said to all of the panellists, do you wish for or indeed hope for an afterlife? Do you wish for or indeed hope for an afterlife? Now, Julie Bishop, who was then the deputy leader of the Liberal Party, uh, the deputy opposition leader, she replied... Well, I hope this is not it. I mean, is this it? That's part of my faith. I hope that there's something beyond what we have on earth. I don't know. I don't think about death that often, actually, and so it's part of my hope that there is something more, but I haven't, you know, formed that in any sense that, you know, I'm going to be up there with angels and that sort of thing. I don't mean that, but I just think that we have this human being kind and I believe we have a soul and I would hope that that soul lives on. Did you get that? This is someone who's making government policy. Well, I hope she's better at making policy than she is on working out the true nature of her eternal destiny. 
Well, anyway, the next in line was a psychologist, Patrick McGorry, very well known for the stance. He's a very well-credentialed, eminent psychologist and someone who's made a real stand on behalf of people seeking asylum in Australia. So he followed hard on the heels of Julie Bishop and he said, yeah, I probably agree with that in general. He was really quite bashful about it. Uh, where he'd been so confident on everything else up and uh, this really changed him that's what it that's what it looked like to me yeah i probably agree with that in general that's my general feeling i'd like to think that you know i think about my family and i think about my parents and yeah i'd like to think that so in other words he can't imagine that his parents are nowhere that's the basis of his belief he just can't imagine that his parents are nowhere so, yeah, I'd like to think that. Well, the next one was Jacqueline Ninio, who's a, a Jewish rabbi from a synagogue in Sydney. And she said, I think, I think there's more to us than this body. I think we're an essence or a soul and a spirit. I don't think that when our body dies, that dies as well. Well, that is, we'll never know. And, well, we will know, hopefully, at some point, but I don't know now. And I think my religion teaches me to live the best possible life that I can here and now and to do the best I can in this world, not to focus too much on what comes next. Hmm. Well, that's sort of agnostic, about each way. But the next one was Tony Burke, uh, a member of the federal government at, at this point now, but uh, back then he was the federal agricultural minister. So anyway, this is what he said. And the next speaker was going to be Richard Dawkins, a very famous biologist and atheist, right? And so Dawkins had been holding forth on all his usual stuff, and so... Tony Burke, his answer was, I reckon it's true and I reckon Richard's going to love it. <laughs> so Tony Burke is at once a supernaturalist because he believes that there's life after death, but he's also a universalist because he believes that Richard Dawkins, who doesn't believe in God and who actually hates the idea of God, will be as welcome in heaven as he is. Hmm, says who? Yeah. Well, the last one, and this was really interesting, the last one was Richard Dawkins, but there was another panel who wasn't asked, a panel member, that was Steve Fielding, who was a well-known Christian in Parliament. And for whatever reason, he was overlooked completely. I don't know why, but he was. He didn't get a look in. Uh, but Richard Dawkins was asked, and this is his answer. Let's be realistic about this. We have brains. It's brains that do the thinking. Our brains are going to decay. That will be that. But when you say, is this it, how much more do you want? I mean, this is wonderful. Now, this struck me as really intriguing because a fair chunk of the discussion on the program have been about asylum seekers coming into Australia. And so they pitted the Labor Party and the Liberal Party and their various policies against each other. And as soon as Dawkins said that, I thought, well, I reckon there's plenty of people that can imagine a better life than this. Look at them, they're coming on boats to get here. Now, whatever the rights and wrongs of immigration policy are, there's plenty of people that can imagine a better world than this. Just because you've been to Oxford University and enjoy the life that he does doesn't mean you've spoken for all of humanity. But he says, what could be better? So Tony Jones interrupted him and said, so you don't wish for an afterlife? And Dawkins wrapped it up and said, wouldn't it be incredibly tedious after the first thousand years or so? So that's, he just mocked the idea. Well... Resurrection, says who? Afterlife, says who? As I said, in all the funerals that I did, there was really only one that I could remember where there wasn't some acknowledgement 
that the deceased was now somewhere else doing forever what they always loved to do here on earth. The one that I can remember, which was atheistic in tone, we were there by the graveside and the celebrant uh, stood there and he told us that at this time we needed to be reverent. So he asked three times for us to remember that this was a time of reverence. The coffin was already halfway down. But then he said, he got he, that was just the introductions, but then he got into the, the real stuff that he was going to talk about. He says, evolution teaches us that we must each make way for the next generation. And so I'm st- standing there thinking, trying to look really respectful, and I thought, what you're really saying, that's a polite way of saying your mate is now compost. Now, I don't know what hope that inspired. That, that, if there's no God, then it's true. Evolution teaches us that we must each make, make way for the next generation. He came up to me afterwards and asked what I'd made of his godless service because he knew I was a pastor. And so I said, well, I don't, I don't share your confidence that evolution explains the need for reverence because I don't think you can make a connection. Evolution teaches us that we just go back to the earth. That's all it teaches. It doesn't tell us we need to be reverent about it. So again we ask, says who? Where's your authority? The section of the Bible that we're reading, Nathan preached from it on Good Friday and I'm preaching from it today. This is a long section in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus is disputing the things that he teaches and who he is with the established Jewish authorities. So people like the Pharisees and today the Sadducees and the chief priests and the scribes, the people who were the the pace setters for Jewish religion. And they were opposed to Jesus and they, as he came to Jerusalem, they asked him, where do you get this authority from? Well, right throughout the book of Matthew, Jesus is shown as a person with unmatched authority. So in chapter 7, the crowds acknowledge him as teaching with an authority of a kind that they'd never heard before. He had authority over the elements, so he can come into a boat and he can say stop to the wind and the waves and it's still immediately. And the disciples say, what sort of a man is this? He casts out demons. He heals people from all sorts of afflictions without any effort at all, just with a word. No magic, just a word. He forgives a man's sins before he heals him from being unable to walk. And the Pharisees who are there rightly ask the question, who but God can forgive sins? And Jesus pronounces the man's sins forgiven and then he gets up and walks. But we also see the nature of his authority is a humble authority. It's a servant authority. And so when he comes into Jerusalem, what does he do? He rides on a donkey. Now a donkey was no kind of an animal to go to war on. If you were a king bent on leading a military conquest you'd go on a horse a donkey was a beast of burden it was a working working animal Jesus deliberately chose to enter Jerusalem on a donkey because the prophecy of Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 said that Jerusalem's true king would come that way and so Jesus positioned himself as that sort of a person he goes into the temple and he overturns the money changers tables there because they were turning the house of God into a marketplace And so that really annoyed the Jewish leaders. They asked him by what authority he did these things. And so we get to verse 23 of Matthew chapter 22. So Jesus has spoken to the Pharisees and their enemies in the Jewish hierarchy were the Sadducees because they had big doctrinal differences. And so probably the Pharisees had had their go and then the Sadducees came to take their turn. And so at verse 23 we read, the same day, in other words, the same day that 
Jesus has turned over the tables and the same day as he's had this audience with the Pharisees, the same day Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they ask him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died and having no offspring left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now that is what you call a gotcha question. Do you know about gotcha questions? Uh, It's what they do to politicians, to put them on the spot. They ask them a curly one that can be only answered in a way that gets them into trouble. And that's what the Sadducees were doing here. They had come together with a question. They'd obviously worked hard on it and they really thought that they could stump Jesus and trap him. Now, the Sadducees were wealthy. They were aristocratic. They were like the governing class. They're not as well known in the Bible as the Pharisees uh, because they probably didn't have much as much to do with the ordinary people that seemed most attracted to Jesus. But we know from elsewhere in the book of Acts, chapter 23, that the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they didn't believe in Daniel 12. They didn't believe that there would come a day when people would be raised up from the dust after they died. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spirit. They believed that once a soul, once a person died, they were dead. In other words, they weren't that far different from the funeral celebrant that I was telling you about, except they probably didn't believe in evolution. So they're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to make what he believes look implausible. But they want to make their situation look like a real scenario. So notice in verse 25, there were seven brothers among us. Have you ever, could could you imagine this situation actually happening? Now the background to it is that if you were to look in Deuteronomy uh, in the Old Testament, you would see that there was a provision, Deuteronomy 25, The worst thing that could happen to a Jew or a Hebrew was to die without descendants because then they would be left with no record of their having existed at all. And so their memory lived on through their descendants and their descendants needed land. And so God provided for them by saying if a man died having married without children then it was his brother's obligation to produce children on behalf of his brother with his brother's deceit, his brother's widow, right? We're not sure that it happened all that often, but it was written into the law. Now, the Sadducees, the only part of what we would call the Bible that they acknowledged was the first five books, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. So that was all that they regarded as scripture. The rest they said, no, forget it. So they've come up with this question to make the the resurrection, the idea of people being raised into eternal life looks silly. And verse 29, Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Well, he's not mincing words, is he? Right. You are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead... Have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. 
He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So they're in error, verse 29. They're in error because they've strayed off the true path. The error that they make is thinking of heaven in terms of earth and of thinking of eternity in terms of time. So they sort of thought that the conditions we have on earth will just translate themselves into eternity unchanged. They thought there was too much continuity. But Jesus gives them two reasons why they're wrong. The scenario they've come up with can't actually prove or disprove whether there's eternal life. If there's eternal life, then God will sort out that conundrum in heaven, won't he? If it's a problem having had seven wives, or one woman having seven husbands, then God will sort it out. It's actually not a disproof of the resurrection. But their interpretation of scripture has put a limit on what God can do. So it's almost like they're sitting in judgment. We'll work out what God's actually able to achieve. Now, verse 30, Jesus is clearly not rattled. He tells them that they haven't understood the nature of the resurrection. Now, the resurrection, we need to think of it in terms of inverted commas, the resurrection was a term. It was a term which was current in the world that Jesus was operating in. The Sadducees didn't believe in it, but the Pharisees did. Now, we haven't yet got to Jesus being raised from the dead, so they've seen no evidence for any of that. But there was this theological idea that came from reading what we call the Old Testament, that in the future, there would be a time when people who had died and been buried would be raised to a new life. The Sadducees didn't believe it. Clearly, they understood that Jesus did. But places like Psalm 16 speak of... um, the psalmist's body not seeing corruption in the grave, of enjoying God's presence forever. In the Old Testament, you'll find quite often there's references to people when they die, what happens to them? The poetic description is they're gathered to their people. Remember that from the Old Testament? This one was gathered to his people or gathered to his fathers. Well, that doesn't just mean they're in the same hole in the ground. That suggests that the fathers are there to welcome them, that there's this ongoing life of fellowship. So it's embedded in the text of scripture. But Psalm 113 speaks of a time when uh, we'll enjoy the blessing of life forevermore. And then in Daniel chapter 12, we've seen that many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So the idea of the resurrection was current. And if you know the story of the death of Lazarus, do you remember that story from the Gospel of John? When Jesus goes to see Lazarus's bereaved sisters, Mary and Martha, uh, Jesus says to Martha, your, bro- your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that he will. He'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So Martha believed in the resurrection. The resurrection was the idea which came from the scriptures that death was not the end. But people believed it by virtue of God's promise. They hadn't yet seen the evidence of it. But the Sadducees didn't believe in it. So Jesus has to correct the Sadducees' faulty understanding. Whether they accepted it's another story, probably not. But Jesus says something here that might have concerned you as you were reading it, particularly if you're married. Jesus says, 
verse 30, in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. So in other words, their proposition lacks the basis for any sort of relevance at all. Now we need to think about that before we get back to the subject of the resurrection. That was a concept that troubled my father somewhat after my mum died. And so he said to me one day, do you think I'll know your mother in heaven? What do you think? I've actually had an email from somebody in this congregation asking me that very question and that person was troubled by the idea. Will we know our loved ones in heaven? Well, my answer to that is a simple one, yes, of course we will. Because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Marriage is a good gift. Eternal life with heaven, with God, is, is going to be the best of all things. We're told in 1 Corinthians, one day we'll know as we are known. And I think, of course, there will be, there'll be fellowship in heaven of a different kind. So marriage is a good gift in this creation, but mum and dad won't be married in heaven. And I said to dad, what about our friend Graham? Does that mean he's going to be single for eternity? Dad said, hmm. You see, the thing is, the purpose of marriage on earth was first of all to bring children into, into the world. So in Genesis 1 we're told, be fruitful and multiply. There'll be no bearing of children in the eternal state. The population will be complete from day one. So there'll be no need for marriage to, to continue to reproduce children. But I actually think that the number one purpose of marriage in life is to illustrate the love of Jesus for his church. And since the church will be gathered round Jesus in eternity... What marriage was meant to stand for on earth will be so wonderfully fulfilled in eternity that marriage will no longer be necessary. Now, if you love your husband and your wife, I hope you do, uh, you might be wondering, is there anything better than this? And the answer is yes, there is. No matter how good your marriage is, the eternal state will be better. Now, just because you can't imagine it, doesn't mean God can't accomplish it and so we take it as read from what Jesus says that the Sadducees are in error because they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God and he demonstrates that in the eternal state in the resurrection life marriage will no longer be necessary now if that troubles you then you'll have to talk to God about it but I think the explanation is because God has something even better than marriage in eternity well, we're the bride of Christ. Yeah, we are the bride of Christ. And so that's why I say I think the chief purpose of marriage on earth is more... It's certainly to have children, no question at all, but I think the number one purpose is it's an illustration in, in ways that we can understand of just how much Jesus loves the church. And so all of that will be fulfilled wonderfully in eternity and so marriage will no longer be necessary. Yeah. Um, Anyway, but Jesus proves the point theologically. And so he says to them in verse 31, have you not read? Now that's actually a very provocative statement to Jewish religious leaders, isn't it? Have you not read? Of course they've read it. But you'll notice that he doesn't quote to them from Psalm 16 or Isaiah 26 or from Daniel 12. You notice that? Why wouldn't he have done that? Because they said we don't acknowledge those scriptures. No, he goes back to Exodus 3. Right at the beginning of God's plan to call 
the Israelite slaves out of Egypt, God raises Moses up and God speaks to him from the burning bush. It's right at the beginning of the story. So they couldn't have missed it. And so Jesus says, have you never read? And so verse 31, he says, have you never read? Um, um, As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Three times he gives us the present tense and he tells us something about God and about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Not I was their God, I am their God. That's what he said to Moses hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob had left the scene. I am their God. He's the present tense. And so Jesus establishes from their scriptures that the resurrection is a real thing, that that people will live on in eternity in fellowship with God. And so the crowd was astonished and the Sadducees were silenced. And by doing that, he's established the doctrine of the resurrection, that there is life after death, and he's established it theologically from the scriptures. It's entirely consistent with what God's been revealing through the Old Testament that there will come a time of personal, eternal and ongoing communication with God. He's established it theologically, but in just a few days from when he said these words, he's going to establish it in experience because he's going to submit himself to the cross and he's going to die and after three days he's going to be raised. Now, do you like watching sport on the TV? I do, it's not compulsory, but I like it. Um, but when I watch the footy, before the, the match is introduced, they have their expert commentators, don't they? Now, there's ball-by-ball commentators who will tell you this is what's happening in the game, but when there's something big that's happened, they turn their attention to the expert commentator, and before the game begins, they show us the name of these expert commentators, and they tell us oh, he's played in five premierships, or he was six times All-Australian. In other words, wow... They're really expert. They know the game from the inside. The commentators are just people who can string words together. But these other people know because they've played the game. Now Jesus has established to the Sadducees that it's in the scriptures that people will one day be raised to life. But how do we know? How do we know? How can we be certain on whose authority Jesus is speaking on his authority. We could say, well, he's the son of God. He knows what he's talking about. But to prove that he speaks with authority, he was raised from the dead physically himself. So how do we know that the resurrection is real? Because we've got an expert commentator who knows the game from the inside. He died and he was raised to life. He knew he was going to die and he knew he was going to be raised to life when he said these words. But when he got the disciples together afterwards and and explained exactly what was going on, he left them with no doubt at all that what he'd done or what had happened with him, being raised from the dead by God so that he could never die again because his soul couldn't see corruption in the grave, the disciples understood that what had happened with Jesus was one day going to happen to them and all who put their trust in him. And they understood the fullness of the doctrine of the resurrection. What had been hinted at in the Old Testament had now been manifest in time and space and before their very eyes. 
So Jesus Christ is the expert commentator. He's uniquely qualified because he lived and he died and he was raised to life again. And so because of that and because I believe in his resurrection, I am convinced that anybody who puts their trust in Jesus, death is not the end. But I'm also convinced that there is a resurrection for those who've decided they can live without Jesus. But that's a resurrection of judgment, a resurrection of punishment, and a resurrection that will result in what the book of Revelation calls the second death, where they'll be eternally separated from God and all that's good. And so the Bible teaches the resurrection in the Old Testament, but it demonstrates it through the life and the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There can be no doubt because it's a matter of historical record that Jesus was raised from the dead. And because of that, we can have it as a certainty that what happened to him will one day happen to us as well. We too will be raised from the ground. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 as we finish up. First Corinthians fifteen, twelve to twenty-three. The Apostle Paul has learnt this from Jesus himself, and so he's able to say, in the first written account of the resurrection, the whole of First Corinthians fifteen, uh, but at verse twelve, he points out just how significant this idea is. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Skip down to verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all should be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. What we find there is that Jesus is the prototype of a brand new model of humans. He's been raised from the dead. And one day, all who trust him will find the same. But for, the, for now, his resurrection life flows through all hope who believe, which means that we can look forward to our future, hopefully. It doesn't mean we have to look forward to dying, but it does mean we can face death with confidence and with hope. I was with a man on Tuesday who died on Thursday morning. Uh, he was a dear friend from Pakenham Baptist. Some of you might know Clive Steppens. Did anybody know Clive? He was the director of Youth for Christ in Victoria for many years. Um, a wonderful Christian man who, after 30 odd years of directing Youth for Christ, uh, went over to Sri Lanka and became the principal of an orphanage boarding school. And um, when he came back in his retirement, he taught two lots of CRE uh, at the local primary school until that was stopped. And then he volunteered at Cairo Christian School, and he was doing that until last year. Um, so he died a little way short of his 91st birthday but uh, his daughter-in-law rang me and, and said Clive's in end of life care um, he'd love it if you could go and see him he probably won't recognise you but I went in and, and he greeted me and so we read the scripture the first thing he said was I haven't got long now I'm going home how about that that's the confidence you get from knowing Jesus 
So he's staked his, his life on Jesus since he was a child and he knows Jesus and he knows the power of the resurrection as an experience. And so there he is. He could barely speak, but what he said was, it's good to see you, I haven't got long, I'm going home. That's the power of the resurrection. Then he prayed for me. That's the power of the resurrection. So friends, I don't know where your hope is today. I trust it's in Jesus because there's no other... This world won't give you anything. Um, If all the world can offer is an empty... is a grave and compost... Well... But I saw Clive two days before he died and that looked like a good death to me. He wasn't looking forward to dying but he wasn't scared of death because he believed in the resurrection. Let's pray. Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he taught with wisdom that astonished all those who heard it. We thank you that he was the equal of all of these challenges that came to him. We thank you that you supplied him with the right word at the right time. We thank you that he was so well versed in the scriptures that he could help us us to understand it. We thank you that you are the God of the living uh, and that one day through faith in Christ we'll be able to meet Abraham, Isaac and Jacob too. Uh, We thank you that you've become our God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that for our sake he suffered death and was buried but was raised on the third day, raised incorruptible. And we thank you that one day he'll come again um, and he will establish your kingdom eternally on this earth. So we pray that you would help us to live hope-filled lives, that you would help us to go in the power of the resurrection and the confidence that, uh, that death is an enemy that's been defeated. We pray that you would help us in all these ways, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.